Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Oh, yeah. Today is a day for truth-telling, dispelling myths and misinformation. You remember misinformation? I think she won a big contest, beauty contest, 1957. <laughs> is your microphone working this week? I don't know. It's possible. Let's find out. What's the show about today, Mark C.G. Boyer? Mm, good afternoon, everyone. We're going to be talking about the hotel, the museum. Museum, Vizcaya Museum and Gardens. In Florida. In Florida, Vizcaya Miami, Bay. yeah. It appears, uh, or at least the public has heard, that in 1971, um, a heist of uh, traveling uh, pottery, um, silver... Um, some of it uh, from owned by Napoleon himself. That was traveling around museums and being on display, and it got pilfered. Yeah, huge, huge thing. Uh, not m- a few days after the pilfering, uh, some three young men were nabbed and charged with the crime. And you can find all this information if you go on Wikipedia and you look up the Vizcaya Museum. Yep. It's a big tourist attraction in Miami. And it tells you this whole story and uh, uh, the FBI was involved and uh, this silver collection had been on tour since 1966 when it was first displayed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And uh, in case you wonder what this Vizcaya is, it's a 70-room mansion on the shores of Biscayne Bay in Miami. The daring mansion. Yeah, it's a very endearing mansion because it was built by, built by a guy named James Deering, uh, uh, who was uh, rather rich. <laughs> and very rich, as a matter of fact. Uh, and when he passed away, it was sold to Dade County as a museum. Right. Now, according to the, the story that you'll find just about everywhere... This is what happened. Bandits scaled the wall, disarmed the guard, Harry Bjork. They tied up the 52-year-old Mr. Bjork to a chair at his basement office. And then they ransacked uh, the upstairs tea room, dining room, where the silver was displayed. Took off with everything in a van, and uh, it was the, the FBI got involved, and they finally busted these guys. Yeah, I couldn't find out how the FBI knew where to look. Well, uh, the van had been found abandoned on the freeway. Well, the van was Mr. Bjork's. Yeah, isn't that something? Yeah, it was his van, and because they took the keys. Yep. Apparently, the bandits were quite polite. Yes, very polite. And then, if you read the rest of the story, three different people were arrested in New York, which doesn't seem to make much sense, because they found the silver that was stolen uh, in the van that belonged to the guard. I'll explain all this, what really happened. So, <clears throat> what is your involvement with this particular case? You have some connection to it. Yes, I do. I have been investigating this exciting story since, what, about 2015, 2016? This is just part of what I've been investigating, because after all, I am Burl Bear who, according to someone who should know better, said I was one of America's finest investigative two-crime journalists. Yeah, well, I talked to that person. Yeah, we better wise up. Yeah, I I convinced him that you're imaginary. I am imaginary. Uh, But thanks to hooking up with Pavle Stadimirovic and his beautiful mother, Branka, who was married to a great silver collector named Mr. Stan, Mm -hmm. 
we get the real story of what happened at the Vizcaya Museum. Before we get to that, yes, who is Mr. Stan? Who is uh, our friend? Mr. Stan would eventually become the father of our friend Punch, Pavle Uh Stadimirovic. But at this point in time, Pavle is just a gleam in his father, we say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He has yet to be conceived, if that's conceivable. This is early, you know. No, it's it's inconceivable. Yes, and it will be. So, uh, shall I tell the story? Well, we want to get to who Mr. Stan is and why he is of interest as as an individual, and then we can get to what happened in this story. Okay, he's a very interesting individual, a very talented and brilliant individual. Uh, he comes from a very, uh, she was an aristocratic family in uh, Serbia. Uh, his mother wrote the uh, uh, encyclopedia for Czechoslovakia. Uh, his father and uh, the uh, fellow who was the inspiration for Ian Fleming's James Bond uh, were best friends. And they would sit around and drink tea with their pinkies in the air. <laughs> they were super polite, kind of like the uh, uh, the chipmunks, you know, Chippendale, not the dancers, oh, but the chipmunks. thank you, sir. I said, well, thank you. Oh, no, thank you. No, thank you, you go for... No. Oh, no, you, I insist. I insist. Yeah. Uh, he was very well educated and uh, incredibly well educated. Uh, the only reason he survived his childhood is because he wasn't Jewish. Uh, he was just a little kid when the Nazis came to town, World War II. He was playing outside uh, and behind uh, where he lived, what happened to be the Jewish synagogue. So the Nazis assumed he was Jewish and were just about ready to kill him for fun uh, when they found out, no, 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 you don't kill him. <laughs> he's, he's not Jewish. Uh, and his... Uh, uh, father is very important and influential, so we uh, we leave this kid alone. We'll do other things to him, we just won't kill him. <clears throat> so that that kid wasn't too fond of Nazis who wound up dropping bombs on them from about the second or third floor of buildings. When the tanks would come by, he and his little friends were throwing incendiary devices hmm. and the resistance of the Nazis when he was a kid. How about that? <clears throat> I grew up to be uh, quite a uh, uh, well-informed, well-educated, brilliant fellow, uh, and a journalist, a writer. And uh, that's what kind of got him in trouble. After the war was over, he wrote an expose on how poorly treated the uh, uh, orphan children from the war were, many of whom were, of course, uh, Jewish orphans. And... uh, the uh, the Communist Party that was now running the country didn't like that at all because he was critical of the government. You, you're not supposed to be critical of the government in a communist country. <laughs> and here he, so many people read that article and he was in big trouble. Uh, which probably worked out for the best in the long run. He managed to uh, escape uh, the country uh, I pronounce it H-I-A-S. I get uh, mail from them all the time wanting donations. Uh, what, Hebrew International Assistance uh, Society? Uh, <clears throat> not they uh, help, not uh, they help immigrants get settled. And he kept in contact with them. They were well aware of his writings in defense of the Jewish orphans. 
and uh, they were more than willing to help him out. Uh, he made it to, uh, uh, got out of uh, uh, Serbia, Czechoslovakia, and made it to Italy, where he sat down and figured out with his talents, skills, that uh, within 36 to 48 months, he should be able to be a millionaire in America. Nice work if you can get it. I've, I've had many dreams about that, and, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, they do not come true. Now, you thought he got real confused when he uh, he jumped the border because he he saw a big red star, which is like, you know, communist stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was a Texaco gas station. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what God, so, woo. Anyway, made it to America 1957. And uh, I just got him a job cleaning toilets at the airport and variety of other gigs. And one thing led to another. Married an incredibly wealthy woman. <laughs> no, I haven't come across that as an option. Yeah, he married an incredibly wealthy Jewish woman. And being as he knew so much about Judaism, they all assumed he was Jewish. There were three rabbis at the wedding. Various uh, special guest stars. And uh, that wedding was wound up being annulled when he came home early from work one day and found her in bed with another woman. Okay. Uh, but he got to keep all sorts of nice perks, including a uh, Alfa Romero uh, spider, I think, mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> a couple delis, and I knew a lot about the construction trade. And uh, he wound up... Uh, so he had a deli for a nosh now and then? He had a, a nosh. I had some nosh arrived. A uh, brilliant entrepreneur and businessman. He wound up uh, very ethical and honest. He was uh, well-trusted by the DuPonts and the Chryslers and all those people. Uh, and he uh, took care of uh, many of the important buildings in New York and the museums and that sort of thing, uh, providing security and maintenance. He did the Dakota, where, of course, John Lennon uh, later lived, and uh, those kind of places. And uh, uh, he hit kind of a jackpot one day when... They said, hey, you know, we've got all these lockers from before the war that people put stuff in and they went away and never came back. If you'll clean those out, if you need anything of value, you can keep. Oh. Boy, did he such find things. Such a deal. Such a deal, no kidding. It's a major mitzvah. Yeah, he found Tiffany lamps, books, rare books that alone were worth over a million dollars. Found a fortune he got to keep all of it. Which was pretty amazing. So, and uh, he was a wise business investment man. Wound up owning a variety of businesses, uh, lots of real estate investments. So he became quite wealthy uh, quite early. Uh, he had another uh, wife and a half, and then uh, he met uh, this very uh, woman younger than he, who would uh, come on a scholarship from Ambassador uh, Taylor, and she came from the same country he did. Her name was Branca, beautiful woman. Uh, artist, and he was an artist as well. He had so much in common, and uh, he meets her and says, "Boy, you should move in with me." <laughs> she wasn't shocked. She gave him some serious consideration. <laughs> Next thing you know, they got married, and uh, her aunt was working for a U.S. ambassador, Ambassador uh, John Taylor, and uh, John Taylor had just bought himself a new Rolls Royce. Ambassadors should have a Rolls Royce, don't you think? Right. He bought himself a Rolls Royce, and it uh, it needed to be picked up in Florida and brought to New York. Mm. And so he asked uh, uh, Bronca, 
uh, would your husband and you like to go down to Miami, pick up my Rolls Royce, and bring it back here to New York? Now, she thought that was a swell idea. Now, depending on who's telling the story, the story I'm going to tell you is either a clever combination of creative criminality, nail-biting suspense, crowd-pleasing bravado, or an over-the-top comedy best portrayed by the cast of My Cousin Vinny. In Bronca's version, this famous museum heist that uh, Vizcaya talks about, the kids was nothing more than an opportunity for a romantic, sun-drenched uh, getaway of her husband's birthday. Uh, according to her, uh, it was the same weekend as her husband's birthday, March 19, 1971. So she thought this is just fantastic. Uh, she's excited to go away with her husband for his birthday, just the two of them alone in lovely Florida, the glamorous, enchanting Vizcaya, following a pleasant drive up the coast in Mr. Taylor's Rolls Royce. So visions of a rekindled romance put a sparkle in her eyes and a fresh spring in her step. Anyway, uh, Taylor got some uh, two first-class tickets to Fort Lauderdale. She's one happy passenger until they're about to retrieve their luggage. Pulling up to the terminal was an unexpected and unwelcome sight. Her husband's pal of questionable legality and cocaine proclivities, Alex Texas Karolovnik in a white Cadillac convertible, loaded with her husband's fishing poles, sticking up from the back seat, and a Cuban cigar clamped between his teeth. Hey, Stan, he calls out. I rented this until you get the rolls. <laughs> Well, Bronco knew immediately this wasn't going to be a birthday weekend of candlelight roses and fine wine. And her husband sure as hell didn't bring her to Florida to sit on her hands while he went sport fishing. She was pissed off. He tried to calm her down, but telling a woman to calm down, as you know, is like telling cats to do synchronized swimming. She became about as animated as a Warner Brothers cartoon, and one could easily picture steam rising as her temperature increased. Uh, her husband may be scary when angry, but even he knew better than to mess with his beautiful young wife in public. Uh, now, Alex knew both of them well enough to have serious concerns about the impact of Branca's suspicion about the upcoming sideline assignment. You see, there had been a deal to pick up some merchandise being sold by the overnight guard. He had a significant fortune in several suitcases secured in a conveniently located closet on the estate. The key to that closet was provided by the guard. It's very simple, said Alex. There are seven suitcases full of stuff from a guard who works nights at the museum. I bought from him before. If you're going to be the Vizcaya, you can bring a couple of the suitcases back to New York for me. I'll bring the rest. Well, all Stan and Bronca had to do was roll the suitcases out of the closet into the van that was already parked nearby on the estate, as was Taylor's Rolls Royce. Now, here's an astonishing, never-before-revealed twist to the tale. You can scour the Internet, the crime books of the world, and never find this story because it's never been revealed until now. Ooh, exciting. There was a daring double-cross, a second treasure, in a late-night fake robbery at the museum long after Stan and Branca drove off to New York in Taylor's Rolls-Royce. With Where two, some of the Ill, 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 Ill booty gotten? Well, it was booty that that uh, Alex had arranged to, for them just to pick up in these suitcases. 
Uh, Why was the guard doing this? Because he had severe gambling debts. Ah. Uh, see, uh, he must have bet Cleveland. Yeah, well, he's, yeah. Stan and Branca drove off to New York in Taylor's Rolls Royce with two of the eight Louis Vuitton suitcases. Alex summoned some backup, including Stan's boys' tussle head protege, Billy the Kid, because there was the Cadillac, the guard's van, and Alex's blue van as well. Now, Stan, driving the Cadillac riddle, arrives at the Vizcaya at 10 in the morning, where he sees Alex's blue van and Taylor's white Rolls Royce parked in the restricted parking area. Alex and the guard have gone off somewhere for a meeting, and they'll return when the guard shift begins at 4 p.m. Now, having arrived at the estate, Stan and Branca become enchanted with the beautiful expanse of glorious gardens, and Branca's dream of a romantic getaway becomes a reality. Oh, it's very romantic indeed, she told me. And Stan, it was very virile. I was a younger woman. We had a most exciting time. In other words, they were, you know, boinking their brains out all over the, uh, the Vizcaya estate that day on the beautiful grounds. Do the math. One handsome husband, one beautiful younger wife, 23 acres of exquisite gardens. Quote, we explore the estate in the most romantic manner possible. The details best left to your imagination, she told me. Climaxing their adventure with the Vizcaya, the couple realized that the closet containing the suitcases was right in front of them. And the Rolls Royce was easily accessible. They simply unlocked the closet, removed the eight suitcases, loaded most of them into Alex's van, and the final two into the trunk of the Rolls Royce. When Alex and the guard returned at four, Stan and Branca said goodbye. But the guard became angry. Put everything back in the closet. No, we're not putting anything back. We did exactly what you wanted, and we're leaving. Now, the reason the guard was pissed off is that he'd planned to double-cross everyone by having the heist be a robbery taking place on his shift with him being tied up while the robbers load up the van with treasure. He'd then identify the van and get everyone caught and arrested. He'd have the money to pay off his bookie, plus he'd be a hero for getting the swag back. That's the way he planned it. And he was determined to stick to that plan no matter what. Now, Alex didn't know about the double cross, but he was informed that there was more treasure to be had if he and a few other guys could load up the van with more merchandise. The guard had his fake robbery all arranged for later that night. Now, Alex was no slouch when it came to last-minute necessities on the phone in a heartbeat, summoning a few trusted associates, vacationing in Orlando, securing the required cash for the transaction. Alex and his crew came during the guard's shift, loaded up the other items in a van, waved goodbye to the cooperating guard, who promptly told numerous lies to the police, but gave an accurate description of the van, which was later found abandoned on the New Jersey Turnpike. But that wasn't it his van? Yeah. <laughs> what became of the contents of the suitcase and the other brutal load in the van? Well, all eight suitcases wound up at Stan and Breaker's apartment, which indicates Alex delivered them. Strangely, a Florida newspaper story confirms that, quote, the stolen silver was recovered from the van and was identified by the owners who allowed it displayed at the museum. The recovered silver was indeed displayed at the museum. The items of the suitcase were also from the Vizcaya, but not from the collection. A few items from the suitcases put in Taylor's Rolls Royce were recovered from Stan's New York apartment by a most unfortunate coincidence. No, let's just pause right there. Yeah. Now, at this point, 
your depiction of Mr. Stan and his lovely wife um, was on the up and up. But that isn't necessarily true. Was not Mr. Stan at this point in time a mastermind uh, diamond thief? Well, yes, uh, cooperating. It actually it started with uh, antique dealers were having a terrible time uh, making any money. There was some sort of a depression sort of thing going on. And they figured out that if they were robbed, the insurance would get them back on their feet. And so Stan would rob them so they could get back on their feet so the insurance would, money would cover them. Right. And what happened was the... Uh, the merchants in the Diamond District in New York uh, never really had to worry about being robbed because they were like places like the 13th floor of a building. You know, they right. weren't, we're not talking about little shops. We're talking about, you know, large firms, multi-million dollars. But, you know, you can't get into them. You know, it's very difficult to rob a place such as that. They had never been robbed. Uh, they didn't really have to pay protection money, but all of a sudden, the mob showing up saying, uh, you gotta uh, pay for this protection, you know? And they're going, I don't need protection. No one's ever tried to rob us. It's practically impossible to rob us, you know? And they said, I mean, we're not gonna pay you. Well, guess what would happen? They get robbed. The mob would pay someone to rob them. Well, <laughs> If they're going to get robbed, they might as well be robbed by somebody on their side. So when Stan finds out what's happening to these people, he goes and says, listen, here's what you do. Take all the stuff that you've got, put it in his safe. Then, so that's what he has. Then you take all that stuff, put it in your safe, doubling their inventory. You just keep doing it all the way down the line so everybody's got twice as much as what they had. And then... We rob you, <laughs> and you file your insurance claim. Because the way that stuff was structured is you get full retail value paid to you virtually immediately. If you hadn't been robbed, you couldn't sell that stuff and get that money that quickly. That's like the old joke. Hey, Jay, hear about the, you know, the big robbery of my store. No, when did that happen? Next Tuesday. <laughs> Yeah, it was a they, Sorry, yeah. your business burnt down. Yeah, uh, so it was kind of like a, a Robin Hood sort of venture. This wasn't something where they were robbing people to, to steal from them. They were robbing people to help them. Well, the fun part is, is that <clears throat> Mr. Stan had his own jewelry business in the building. Oh yeah, more and than, the more diamond, than one. The, the, the stuff that was stolen, which is going to his vault. And then he would sell it back to the those that they had robbed. Yeah, and they they had to put price tags on everything and a chain of possession on everything. That took a lot of work to uh, create new chains of possession and tags and everything that you know had been cooperatively stolen from their friends with their friends' total cooperation and permission. So, Mr. Stan wasn't the you know poly purebred. So he was he had he was into. Uh, um, creative management of funds. Yes, he really did, because well, he's passed away just recently, but he really did consider himself a much like the saint, uh, a Robin Hood. He was helping these people. Mm. Uh, and making a buck along the way. 
Yeah. Uh, but not that he really needed to make the buck because he had made so much money legitimately on his investments and what he got out of uh, uh, that the whole thing with uh, cleaning out the vault. Uh, yeah. That uh, and his, his investments were all very wise investments. He had, he had something like five or six offices in the Diamond District. And uh, plus he was, he was uh, the, uh, so say the super, the caretaker the, for uh, the Museum of Modern Art, uh, all those, you know, the high, you know, and uh, uh, all the upper crusts of New York, they all came to him because he was so reliable, so trustworthy. And uh, he was incredibly reliable and trustworthy. There's something else notable about our Mr. Stan. Um, for the heists themselves, that he would identify and contract with specific skill sets. Yeah. And those with those skill sets would come along, practice, commit the crime, and go away. Yes. The problem with a crew is that repeat repeat offenses uh, tend to get the law enforcement closer to identifying you. But if you do a one-off and disappear and never commit another crime, it's almost impossible for the police to get you. Well, even then, uh, while they had some of the people, he had six different crews, and they were all experts in certain particular areas. They weren't, as they say, over-pasta-stuffed oh, thugs. These were all uh, highly trained, specific experts in certain fields. Uh, you had uh, one fellow who could get in anywhere. Uh, any type of key, any kind of lock, whatever it was, he could get you in. You had an expert rigger or any any late-night high-wire act going on on the 13th. Oh, yeah. Well, see, this is the thing, is the... the the cops could not figure out how these these crimes should be committed because they're not robbing like some little jewelry store sitting down here on the corner. They're on the 13th or 14th, 15th floor of a building of a skyscraper in New York. Uh, how are they doing this? And the cops could not figure it out. Finally got night vision goggles. And what do they see? They see acrobats rappelling off of buildings with ropes. <laughs> You know, like trapeze artists. Yes. And they're dumbfounded. They've never seen anything like that before. And if one of them got caught or grabbed, they all had fake identities, fake names. They could, if you called and followed up on it, uh, you'd get validation for who they were. And being as they had no priors, and this is third degree burglary. No weapons, no contact with any people. That's third degree. That means you get released on your personal recognizance on your first offense. Right. They're not going to keep you. They're not going to put you in jail right away. And then... <clears throat> then <this>, you vanish. <laughs> this particular MO or way of operating crew, nonviolent, non-confrontational, experts in their field for commit the pieces of the crime, Victims, total, total victimless crimes. This be, this become the forerunner for the now famous Pink Panther criminal organization, which effectively isn't a criminal organization, because the the M.O. is one and done. 
Yeah, well, it's it's actually from the same crews. It's people who wound up working for Mr. Stan, and they just simply kept doing stuff. Basically, it came down to how many Pink Panthers are. There was five of them, and I think three of them died. There was two of them, but they just bring in specific experts for specific gigs. And that was it. So that sets the stage. Now, Stan and his new wife, they go to Miami, they pick up the suitcases in the Royal Rolls Royce, and they return home. That's right. And then, by the strangest of things happening, the cops come knocking on their door. Hello there. <laughs> Are you home? <laughs> now... It sounds, in retrospect, as if uh, they they came there because they wanted to bust them for the Vizcaya. No, no, no. They hadn't even heard about it yet. Right? This was... They knew nothing about the Vizcaya when they went to Stan's apartment. Here's what... Uh, I'll tell you what transpired. They're minding their own business. <laughs> as one would do. And uh, all of a sudden, there's cops at the door. I just said, I just give me a second to come up, uh, come get, find my place here in the story. <clears throat> okay, now the NYPD cops who arrested Stan and Bronca and Alex had no knowledge of the Vizcaya Museum heist. Well, why, why, what was the real reason they were there? Okay. Police. I will tell you. Because you asked. These cops were allegedly in the pocket of one of New York's five mafia families. That's an important detail. A detail of such magnitude that its significance eluded their son, Paul, a.k.a. Punch, for many decades. This all happened before I was born, as Punches will told us. Uh, but I heard the story all my life. And I, I used to tell the story as if it were about a bunch of crooked cops robbing my folks. It's not. It's the story of how some overeager, allegedly corrupt, mobbed-up cops handed my father the keys to the master lock, threw wide the gates of financial opportunity, and forever sealed Mr. Stan's fortune and his soon-to-be son's future. When these cops saw all the incredible silver, art, antiques, and precious gems, they assumed, erroneously, it must be all be stolen. No, it wasn't. Most of the items taken from the apartment had no connection to the Vizcaya at all and were acquired perfectly legally. The cops decided to extort money from them. They wanted a $6,000 cash payoff. Thankfully, Stan didn't have 6000 cash on him. At least that's what he told the cops. They pressured him, but he insisted he simply didn't have the cash. Of course not. If he gave these guys cash, he would be divided up, stuffed in their pockets, and a story. The mafia family for whom the cops worked would never hear about the 6000 cash, let alone where it came from. Plus, there'd be nothing to keep these jerks from coming back for more cash. Gentlemen, said Stan, in words such as these, follow me, and I assure you, I will show you something astonishing, and I'll assure that when you leave, both our futures will be assured and trouble-free. 
Intrigued, these crooked cops dutifully followed him to what I can only be described as the treasure room. Now, it might have taken carjacks to lift their jaws off the floor when they beheld what Mr. Stan so readily revealed. When negotiations were over, the cops called for backup. They needed two vans and more men to load up all the valuables. Then they loaded Stan and Branca and heaped humiliation on young Branca, who was tossed in the local slammer, treated like crap. She was terrified, alone, and scared to death. Stan, dapper as ever, entered the men's unit as if a conquering hero. Everyone admired Mr. Stan, except maybe the asshole cops who robbed him. The inmates were impressed because he was being held on a $100,000 bail, an amount usually reserved for someone charged with first-degree murder. No problem. The professor, Andre Montrose, showed up with cash in hand to pay the bail, but the authorities still held Stan and Branca a while longer to make sure the money was neither counterfeit nor stolen. Almost everything those cops stole was purchased or acquired legally. They took rare books, Tiffany lamps, antique silver items that were collected and paid for legally. Cops took merchandise estimated a value of over $1 million. Now, $1 million buys a lot more than 6000 especially when men of a certain standing and reputation in the community must make sincere amends for the regrettable actions of underlings. Do I need to draw you a picture? Uh, yes, please. Uh, I have some crayons. Okay. Had the cops sought permission from a mafia family to rob Mr. Stan, the permission would never be granted. Mr. Stan was not the man you rob. He's the man you admire and respect. He's a man of his word and a man you can trust. All five New York mafia families knew his standing among the famed financiers and developers whose roots were deeper in the city's corrupt soil than any of them. The heads of the five families comprehended the situation perfectly. And you should grasp that in the world of criminals, there are thugs and punks and semi-illiterate opportunists devoid of any moral compass. And then you have the elite of the elite, the top floor, the penthouse atop the pinnacle of crime's hierarchy is the one who can do that which is the greatest and most prestigious act of all, a diamond heist where no one is hurt and even the victims are, in the final analysis, perfectly happy. That, of course, was Mr. Stan, a man of means but by no means a punk, thug, armed robber or I hope nobody is home burglar. They owed Mr. Stan more than a heartfelt condolences for the affront to his privacy, safety, and dignity. Gentlemen do not treat other gentlemen with such crude thuggery, and there would be sincere assurances that such a tragic error was never sanctioned by them and would never happen again. And while Mr. Stan, his lovely wife, and his friend Alex were arrested, the charges were, quote, on suspicion of possessing stolen property. And that's as far as it went. As far as Branca were concerned, it went too far. It was horrible and demeaning, she told me. We had just returned from this lovely trip to Florida for Stan's birthday, visited the Vizcaya Gardens, picked up some suitcases that we were asked to pick up, and brought Ambassador Taylor's Rolls Royce back to New York, and suddenly I'm being treated as some sort of criminal. Arrested on Friday, released on Monday while Stan was still in jail, Branca returned home to find 
Nothing. Nothing at all. The entire apartment had been completely cleaned up. Looted. 100%. She didn't have underwear or change of clothes. Where did it go? It went to the home of the Virdens, a family of Croatians from Serbia. She went there, and she sees a woman wearing her dress. All their possessions were now in this family's home. All the cash she had in her bedroom is now in Mr. Virdens' pocket. If she wanted what was in his pockets, she had to take what was in his pants. He wanted sex with her first before he would return anything. The thief suggested that he and Branca run off together to California, a trip financed by the money he stole from her apartment. <laughs> Imagine what she said. Are you crazy? What are you thinking? You steal everything I have and expect me to have sex with you? Run off with you? Branca told me it was horrible. We had everything taken from us except our prestige. My look stands charm. It wouldn't be long before they were back in the high life again, but in the meantime, it was her aunt Rhonda to the rescue. She was living in the 20-room luxury apartment utilized on and off by the Sudanese ambassadors. In an apartment that size, whose residents were Sullivan residents, it was easy to move Stan and Branca in without anyone ever noticing. Plenty of food, delightful accommodations, and it served as an excellent launching pad for the next stage of Stan and Branca's career in the realm of high society reputations and higher-yield heists. Now, i got to tell you something about the lovely Branca. I've met her, spent time with her, and she's still as beautiful today as she was in 1971. She's as famed for her minimizing as she is for her abilities to uh, select the most lucrative and easily accomplished heists. <clears throat> Hence, one must magnify Stan and her complicity in any criminal endeavor in which Branca might portray her husband and herself as almost innocent bystanders. Regardless of appropriate credit or ignoble complicity, the question New York's five mafia families had to ask themselves was, quote, how do you make amends to a man whom you so admire? <clears throat> That's the question. How do you make amends? And how doth that one? Every crime boss knows that having a judge in your pocket is nothing compared to having a U.S. ambassador up your sleeve, plus open checkbooks from the wealthiest families in New York. The heads of the five families would give dearly to be as connected and respected as Mr. Stan. How is it that the charming rogue millionaire heistmaster never was arrested, detained, questioned, or mistreated again by the boys in blue or the anti-crime leaders? Simple. He had established his ascendancy over them most graciously. Graciously, excuse me. He didn't seek revenge for the robbery because the robbery, in reality, was his revenge for the attempted shakedown and his outcome a demonstration of the true power born of insight, wit, wisdom, and a mind that saw in full-color 70-millimeter what others only saw in 16-millimeter black and white. Despite being linked to the Vizcaya heist in the museum's history brochure, they were never prosecuted for anything related to the heist itself, and their prestige in New York's high society did not drop by even a percentage point. Mr. Stan continued to manage the most prestigious buildings in New York City and was the go-to man for any repairs, constructions, or painting on the city's famed museums and galleries. In fact, you can kind of imagine their old money clients explaining this case incident away with the possibly honest explanation that Mr. Stan was always buying antique silver art artifacts so it was certainly possible to innocently purchase stolen merchandise. 
Well, it's probably just some absurd misunderstanding, you know, they'd say. Actually, my husband and I made off with $1.5 million in rarities and brought them to Manhattan in the trunk of a new Rolls Royce, belonging to the former United States Ambassador to Switzerland. <laughs> the intense press coverage over 100... <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry about that. The intense press coverage over 100 newspaper stories in the USA alone made Mr. Sen even more famous in Serbia than he already had become because of his business success. Big article in the New York Times with their names in about how they were arrested uh, in connection with the Vizcaya heist. Uh... Uh, Alex and uh, Mr. Stan kind of had a parting of the ways. And then when the Serbian uh, diaspora of the 1980s and 1990s was underway, people came to America with the singular goal of meeting Mr. Stan in hopes of finding employment. They were, of course, 100% rewarded and assimilated. No man did more to employ and integrate newly arrived refugees into mainstream middle-class America than Mr. Stan. From doormen at the exclusive residence hotels to security guards for Holmes and Wells Fargo, Mr. Stan was the man who could assure your future by his extensive social contacts and his own personal generosity. Of all the surprise repercussions of the Vizcaya incident, one incident was entirely conceivable. A baby. Yes, the adrenaline rush of that whole fracas not only stimulated Mr. Stan's criminal evolution, but also planted a seed that in the fullness of gestation became little Paul, a.k.a. Pavle Stadamir Vicar Pal Punch. Yep, Bronco, once an innocent 18-year-old art student who came to America less than three years before, was married, pregnant, and forever associated with a world-famous heist that never happened, only in America. And our so Pal Punch, questions. born May 10th, 1972. I have questions. Yes, you have questions, we have answers. Okay. What's the question? The young men who were arrested with the ill-gotten booty, or ill-boot-and-gotty, <laughs> how did they get a hold of it? How did they get what? Excuse me? How did they get what? Okay. According to the, the lovely Uncle Google telling <laughs> me that uh, the FBI, a few days after the heist, in New York, arrested some young men with a portion of the loot. Yep, the stuff that had been on display. Mm -hmm. So how did that happen? How'd they get arrested? No, we know how they got arrested. Cops went in and said, you're under arrest. Um, how, did they, how did they fit into the actual crime of pilfering from the museum? Uh, we've been trying to figure that one out. But there were seven suitcases. Uh, there were seven suitcases, and that was the stuff that wasn't on the display, in the display. The stuff that was in the van that the FBI caught these 19 and 18-year-old kids, that was the stuff that had been on display. That was the Napoleon's, uh, you know, drinking cup, that sort of stuff. And... Um, we chatted with uh, the uh, the nineteen year old kid. Got now pumped. not nineteen, huh? Now not nineteen. He's not nineteen now. No. Uh, 
And it was kind of a kind of a, a muddled story, but it, apparently it seems that the uh, uh, it worked pretty much like the guard originally wanted. You get some fall guy patsies to here, take this stuff and go on the freeway and wait to get arrested. Because he said, oh, yeah, they tied me up. So you have two different sets of people arrested. You got these 19-year-old, 18-19-year-old kids with the stuff that had been on display, you know, Napoleon's, uh, you know, uh, drinking cup, <laughs> his holy grail. And then you have uh, Bronca and Stan and Alex who get temporarily charged with suspicion of possession of stolen merchandise when that wasn't the stuff that was allegedly stolen. And they had a bunch of their own stuff stolen. But it all came out of the wash. It was just a spin cycle that made them crazy. And while it was very, very stressful and expensive because they lost over a million dollars in perfectly legally acquired stuff that the cops made off with, it paid off in the long run because the mafia families were so upset that this happened to someone they respected so much. Um, no one ever touched him again. Well, what, uh, what happened to the officers that came for the shakedown was there any comeuppance um well i they never bothered him again wow that's one thing. that's one thing uh, obviously they i think they got they their stopped, hands slapped a little taken bit out of the apartment was never returned no so but i doubt it's still in the evidence room i, I doubt it's still in the evidence room either and there's a lot of corruption going on back then as we <laughs> as we well know all I have to do is, is ask uh, our guest last week, Ken Urell, I'll tell you. Uh, all sorts of strange stuff going on. Uh, in fact, uh, we were joking that uh, uh, when Ken uh, got arrested, it took uh, Pavle off of the front page, <laughs> or vice versa. <laughs> One of them was real happy about that. Yeah, boy, when you got arrested, that... Uh, Took me off the front page. I was happy about that. Kind of reminds me of, and we have this up so people can listen to it. I went to Las Vegas and recorded the mob sit-down. And you had these mafioso guys, including Hitman, who's now since passed away. And you had Henry Hill, you know, from uh, Goodfellas. And all these other guys. And you had Denny Arnold, friend Dennis Griffiths, who's since passed away. And... Uh, you had the mobsters and you had the guys who arrested them all on the same panel. And the best of friends. Swapping story. Hey, remember when I arrested you? Blah, 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 blah. And because, because it's truly a game. Yeah. It's a and, game of cat and mouse. And, and there's nothing personal. In it. Nothing personal. It's just business. Yeah. It's like that scene of The Godfather where he says, uh, he says to, uh, what's his name? Uh, Hagen. He says, Hey, is this Hagen? Can you let me off on this? For old time's sake. For old time's sake. Yeah, for old time's sake. No. Nah, I'm sorry. You know, we have to kill you. Nothing personal. Yeah, it's business. You know, oh, I understand. Ooh. Yeah, I think Abe Gota is still hanging on. Yeah, he is. Is he still alive? Yeah. Yeah, I guess the world lousy shots. Uh, I was watching the other day the uh, a video that was done of our pal Punch where I, I wanted to just stop the video and slap him. They had him saying things that he shouldn't say because he gave a wrong impression. He said, Mr. Stan was the boss of bosses. Made him sound like he was a mafia guy. No, 
He said that this other guy was an underboss. No, there was no underboss. It was, it was so different from any mafia setup. Uh, totally different. You could go in there work one job for Mr. Stan. One heist, one time, doing one little thing, one specific act, and you're gone. And most people did one job, and they put their money in real estate. And that's where the title of my forthcoming book that I did with Punch called Stealing Manhattan. Ah, that's the name. Because Punch says, I can look at the New York skyline, and I can tell you what heist paid for the real estate buy that put up that skyscraper. That, the New York skyline was paid for by my crew stealing Manhattan. That's where the money went. Went into real estate, went into... Because they weren't killing each other, fighting over the money. They already had money. And Mr. Stan honestly thought of himself like the saint, the Robin Hood of modern crime. Most of the money that they got went to help the less fortunate. It went to the community in general. Went for all sorts of, of community projects. They didn't need to put it in their pocket. That's not why they did it. They did it because it was their, it was their entertainment. It's what they did. It was great fun, and every and there was no victim. Everyone was in on it, including the security companies. People were getting robbed, and because the insurance companies were tied in with the mobs, the mobs knew who to pay. <laughs> so, no one was complaining except the major case squad. No, yeah, no, no convention. Yeah, boy, it's too bad, you know, because when uh, when Punch got arrested in his father's office, that's where they came and got him, and they apologized to Mr. Stan. Oh, Mr. Stan, we apologize for arresting your son right here. <laughs> and Punch fainted. Uh, Miss, uh, Mr. Vigoda passed uh, in January 2016. Well, ninety. Four years old. Wow, that's a let's see how that got a ways to go. I'm seventy. God, Joyce, I'm seventy-five years old. Um, like I said, you're imaginary. Phew, boy, I always thought seventy-five was like really old. And I guess it is. <laughs> Teach me a lesson. I'm an alta cocker. Uh, yes. Hey, next week right. we have a gentile on the show. Ah, remember, you have to talk to Matt about bringing someone in. He already knows. He said, bring the guitar, tell him to get his ass in here, he said. That was the exact words. Okay. So, uh, Matthew Gentile. Two Jews, one Gentile, next Saturday. Ah. <laughs> uh, He's a film director. His movie, American Murder, her... Uh, what's his first name? His name is Matthew. Matthew Gentile. He's the writer and director of a new motion picture. Uh, in theaters uh, at, towards the end of this month starring uh, what's his name one of my favorite Ryan Felipe can you pronounce his name I think he's really good he was in Breach with, with uh, Chris Cooper it was a great yeah. film also well anything Chris Cooper's in is better Chris Cooper's great I watched American Beauty again the other night he's in that too uh, yes the closeted uh, gay yeah. military guy yeah who beats the crap out of his son all the time yeah, that's a fabulous film. Yes. Let me tell you about The Day I Died. Yes. Now, you may not understand what I'm saying, but trust me, 
You'll understand. Sooner or later, everything's just so beautiful. That girl looks like beautiful when he has the question on an American beauty. I mean, the young girl who uh, tries to seduce our hero. And she tries to seduce, she just gives the impression of being a seductress. But she isn't. When it comes down to brass tacks. So the movie is American Murderer? American Murderer. And Ryan Felipe and a bunch of other people. And it's a true story. It's a true crime story, which is why he's going to be on... The writer-director is going to be on True Crime Uncensored on October 15th. Uh, and then he's going to hang around and be on Magic Matt Allen's uh, Outlaw Radio with the Demons of Decadence, live in the Lighting Up Lounge. So it's going to be a fun-packed true crime weekend on OutlawRadioLive.com. So call up all your friends, tell them to... You know, cancel going to the glory hole and just, you know, hang. Uh, yes. Now, Mr. Burl Bear, what's next? Magic Ben Allen, the Demons of Decadence, live from the Land of Lies. And now, we're going to where the living legends live, breathe, and play the hits. The police in New York City even hit the post. Just a boy right through the park. In a place of mistake and identity.
I don't give a fuck if you care or not. And that's why there's a, no fucking Care Bears around here. 